be willing to bet that 95% of my doctors do not do any exterior marketing. And the reason they don't is because they get so many referrals in-house. Because again, the, the patient who's willing to pay for the services knows other patients like themselves and are probably in the same age bracket, same demographic. And so they have the same needs as the patient who you presently have, right? So all of a sudden, doctors realize I'm getting patients from the larger population at no cost to me because my patients are actually doing the marketing for me. Hey, it's Justin Harvey. Thanks for tuning in to the Anesthesia and Pain Management Success Podcast. With APM Success, we take a close look at important topics pertaining to business, practice management, personal finance, and careers for anesthesiologists and pain management physicians. We work hard to take your critical questions straight to the experts. Thanks for listening. Hello, and welcome to this episode of APM Success. I'm very pleased to be joined today by Joe Kenrick. Joe is uh, an expert in seeing under the hood of a lot of physician private practices, and he's going to talk to us today about business considerations and getting off the reservation a little bit out of just thinking about insurance reimbursement and looking at ancillary income, cash pay patients, and expanding a physician's mind as it relates to opportunities that they might not be aware of. So welcome, Joe. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate it, Justin. I look forward to the conversation. Likewise. So for our listeners, why don't you give a little bit of background as to your sort of professional arc up to this point? Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. I am presently in sales, but I, I see myself as more of, of a consultant for doctors because at the end of the day, if I can't answer the questions that solve the problems that they have, it doesn't do either of us any good. And so I also own my own business. I have I have a bar and grill and and I work for my dad. He owned his own business. So I I've, you know, we have that entrepreneurial spirit. And what I see in my business and my father's business is a willingness to change to address the concerns of the customer, right? So when I take a look at the medical profession and I realize as I've been working with them for 20 years, that there is a challenge that they face. And part of the challenge is being open to the possibility that they're going to have to go forward in their practice with a little bit more flexibility and looking at cash pay services. Because unfortunately, if they're tied to insurance, everybody knows that the insurance rates are dropping. Doctors are unhappy with that. They end up working more hours, seeing more patients. To get a doctor to sit down for lunch is almost impossible nowadays because they're seeing three or four patients during that period. And then they're taking documentation home. And all of this is tied to the fact that they have to see more patients to make up for their losses. And they're essentially on a hamster wheel where they're just working harder for less pay. And if they would stand outside their practice just a little and look at it and say, you know what, long term, this is not going to work for me. What do I need to do? Right. And so presently, a lot of doctors look at things like direct pay or concierge. But the challenges they face with that, you know, they're concerned about, I don't know if I can sell. I don't know if I can sign up enough patients to do that. All of that kind of freezes them in in space, right? They just kind of stay, okay, I just got to figure this thing out. And really, the solution for them is not to drastically change their practice, but look at their practice, identify the areas where they're a little weak with their patients, the services they offer, 
and bring in a patient-centered cash service that actually solves a problem better than an insurance-based solution does and generate revenue. And when they generate additional revenue, they're now in a position to look at their insurance partners and say, you know what? Some of these are not doing us any good. They're slow pay. They're no pay. They're throwing denials at us right and left. I probably don't need to deal with those insurance companies. And so they can actually start to craft a practice that fits their model, their patient population, and their financial goals by just bringing in new services. And we call this the hybrid model where you're part insurance and part cash. And for our doctors, we've seen just tremendous success with it. And they're they're much happier with that model. And again, we're not we're not taking them completely out of their practice and going into concierge or direct pay. We're just tweaking their practice. I think uh, this is a good opportunity for, especially, I, th- I think the target cohort for today's conversation is going to be the pain management physician who's a decision maker in their organization. This is also true in anesthesia, but sort of less so because cash pay and anesthesia gets complicated in different ways, and we're not going to go there for the moment. But this is a good opportunity to describe this principle. And this, the same thing exists probably in you know your the business you're also involved in of the bar yeah. and grill and also in mine of financial advising and investment management of yeah. sometimes you can be so busy in the business you don't ever yeah. think about working on the business and you don't right. block a time out on your calendar of this is the weekend retreat where I'm going to go and sit alone in the cabin in the woods with my moleskin and my pen and think about where do I actually want to go and what does my business need to do to get me there and what strategic decisions need to be made or strategic shifts need to occur in order to progress towards those goals. So I think the first step in this process, as our listeners are trying to get their brain wrapped around, what does it look like to sort of build ancillary lines of revenue is how often do you think about working on your business? And if that's not something that has a regular part in your calendar, good news is you just pull out your phone, click on that little <laughs> icon on your calendar and like block out a day where there's there's no patience or maybe it's a weekend day or a Sunday or whatever. And just sit down and think about where do I want to go and ha- look at the business objectively exactly as you described, Joe. Right. Well, you know, it's interesting too. And I think a lot of times doctors don't realize that when they have a patient that comes in, And they get to the point where they say, you know, I don't know what to do for you, Mrs. Johnson. And they refer that patient out. That's an indication of a gap. It's an indication of a gap of of services or care that if they actually filled that gap, they would end up generating more revenue, right? Because you just, you've not only lost a patient, you've lost the revenue and you've lost the potential for reputation because that patient's no longer singing your praises because they went to another doctor. And unfortunately, if you if you look at the pain doctors, the entire spectrum of pain doctors, they all have their own way of dealing with pain, right? So you have the orthopedic surgeon who's predominantly going to do surgery. You have the PM&R doctor who's predominantly going to do injections, maybe a little radiofrequency. You got the chiropractor who's going to adjust. You've got the podiatrist who's going to do surgery also, right? And maybe some shots and steroids and booting. So everybody has their own way of dealing with it. But there's a huge opportunity for doctors who deal with pain to look at other ways of treating pain that are outside the insurance model that'll enhance, not only enhance their services to their patients, but will differentiate them from all the other doctors in the area and start to attract patients looking for new solutions, right? Because at the end of the day, 
and th- there's no insult meant by this at all. I own a bar. I have three other bars right down the street. I have 15 bars a couple miles away, right? So what do I have to do in my bar to differentiate myself from all the other bars that makes a patient, a customer want to come to my bar, right? So same thing, whatever your specialty is, if you look at your website and every other doctor in your area who has a website, you're going to notice that you you all do approximately the same thing, right? So what makes a patient say, I need to go to this doctor over that doctor because they offer these services. If if all the services are basically the same, then you're, and I hate to say it, sort of a commodity to the patient. And they're usually going to pick the closest doctor. Or if a friend says, you know, I went to Dr. Smith, they're going to go to Dr. Smith because that's the only reference they have, right? Your goal is not to be a practitioner whose business is built on proximity, because then you're just getting the average patient versus the ideal high value patient who's actually looking for new solutions. So when you're looking to work on your practice, it's really about differentiating your practice and figuring out what can I offer that the others aren't offering? And can I bring that in? And is that profitable? And then, you know, go through the process of understanding profitability. And, you know, as somebody with the financial background, I can't help but look at this. What you're describing is like a shift in philosophy. And frequently, physicians are conditioned through the medical education system and the, their training to to have certain ideas about money. And I see this with the work that I do with clients where, you know, the decisions that we make in real time and the place in which we find ourselves is often just a result of the sum total of all of the ideas we have about what money is and the role that it plays and how we ought to interact with it. And physicians often come to entrepreneurship if they're practice owners, having accumulated many thoughts about money and about business and about, you know, you're a sales guy. That was one of the words that you used to describe your vocation. That's like a dirty word in medicine frequently. Oh yeah, Money is a little bit, you know, it's gross. It's like, it gets on you and you want to like try to, it's, it's, yeah. there's this idea that if you're, it's, it's lesser, it's a necessary evil perhaps. And I, I think a, a reframing of the economics of medicine mentally and the way that you interact with that is it's kind of a necessary precursor to being able to be liberated, to push into serving your patients with kind of freedom. And then you communicate (laughs) about what you do very differently. And that begets a a different outcome than a physician who is sort of mired in these ideas about money and about business and about the practice, the, the business practice of medicine that frankly, those ideas don't serve them anymore. Is that something you see with the physicians you work with? Every day. So it's interesting because I'm old enough to remember that the idea was you would go through school, you would hang your shingle, patients would come, you'd have a quality lifestyle, you'd be at the top percentile of earners, you'd be a respected member of your community, you'd be a pillar of society, you know, all of that was built into that, I don't want to say storyline, but that was the sort of like the unpromised, but often stated, you know, future for you. You're going to, this is what your world's going to be, right? So every time a young student gets accepted into med school, their aunts, their uncles, their mom, their dad, everybody congratulates them because that's the vision that they have, right? And so they open up a practice and nowadays they they realize it's it's not that. 
My reimbursements continue to drop. Inflation continues to go north. I have more competition than ever before. Insurance companies are now paying other providers besides doctors for what I do, right? So I'm in competition with people who are not even medically degreed as doctors. And so this creates a, a dramatic difference from what they thought they were going to get to what they're getting today, right? And so I also have a background in art. And so in the world of art, you had two groups of artists. You were either a fine artist, and that's a, that's a nice way of saying starving artist, or you were a graphic artist, and the graphic artists actually made money with their skill set, but they were looked down upon because, you know, they're they're just using their skill for money, right? So I kind of get that whole money is evil situation. But if you look at business today and you look at people who are very successful, it's not because they're charging more and taking money out of the population and, and essentially being greedy. It's they're serving more people, right? So Microsoft served millions of people and made the computer a functional entity for us. And people like myself have made significant incomes because I can do things because he's made the computer accessible. Because before it was cobalt and punch cards and, you know, modems and all that, right? So I think that the challenge for doctors is if they would understand that the value they bring to the market, the value they bring to the patients will increase and that will be rewarded. So instead of looking at money as somehow evil, recognize that money is an indication of the number of patients you've been able to help and the quality of help you've been able to provide. So if you're making more money than th this year than last year, it's likely because you're serving more patients or you're providing treatments and solutions that you weren't able to provide previously and you're being rewarded for that, right? I think the other challenge that a lot of doctors have is the entire idea of sales, right? Just the concept of sales feels dirty because we've all been put in a situation where we've been manipulated or or what we feel like is taken advantage of. And, and, and that could be the proverbial used car salesperson, or it could be I'm on a diet. I got through the grocery store. I did not go through the cookie line. I did not go through the chip line. I did everything I was supposed to. And I walk out and there's a troop of young kids selling cookies. <laughs> and who can resist you know? that table outside and, of the grocery store? Yeah. Not and me. the best thing you can do is take out two bucks and throw it and keep running without grabbing a box. But you feel like you're, you're under pressure, right? And nobody likes that. Yeah. And that's how people think sales are. But if, but if you took a look at, I, I'm, I'm sure every one of your people in your audience have a high definition TV, right? And the buying process was, oh, I'm really interested in that. And then you started studying it and looking at them. And then you realized that the quality and, and what was being offered continued to increase. But there's some point where you said, all right, I want that 55 inch. I want that curved TV. I want that smart TV. I want all of those features. And you said, essentially, the money in my pocket is less important to me than that TV. So I will give that guy my money. He will give me his TV. We both think the other person has something of more value. And so we do a fair exchange, right? And we're both the winners. 
because the the salesperson wants the money more than the TV. The, the, the customer wants the TV more than the money, right? So there's nothing inherently sleazy about that. And it's not, but but we do these kind of sales and, and purchases every single day, right? And so I think sometimes it's really the doctor under trying to understand that sales is just helping somebody get what they want in a, in a manner that works for them. So I actually think that most doctors already sell. And all they have to do is continue to do what they do today. So if a patient comes in, let's say Mrs. Johnson, you're going to come up with a series of solutions. Well, Mrs. Johnson, we can try these pills, right? We can write a prescription. If that doesn't work, maybe we need to do an injection of some sort, a steroid shot or something. And if that doesn't work, we can do surgery, right? So we give her two or three options. And then Mrs. Johnson's going to ask questions like, well, what about this? And what about this? I'm trying to get pregnant. Will it affect this? I'm going on a, a marathon in, in three weeks. Will it affect that? Right? She's asking clarifying questions. And then you answer those. And then the, the patient was just going to say, well, it sounds to me like the best thing for me at this point is A, whatever A is. And the doctor is going to say, yes, that's right, Mrs. Johnson. Let's do that. And if that doesn't work, we're going to try something a little bit more invasive or aggressive or costly or whatever, right? That's sales. You educated the patient, you gave them the option, you clarified their questions that they had you, you, by answering them and making sure they understood the value. And then they made a decision and that was a sales opportunity and you sold. So I think doctors think that sales is somehow difficult or complex or somewhere outside of their their normal day, but they do it every single day. So for the listeners out there who are thinking, okay, this makes sense, Joseph. I, I understand what you're saying. I want to move in this direction. I'm looking at my revenue composition and all I see is all the big boys who we're not going to name because I don't want to get sued for saying some, some offhanded <laughs> comment, but we all know who we're talking about. And I'm looking at reimbursement, get slashed and slashed, especially if you're in just an office-based practice, you don't have access to a surgery center where you're getting the the technical component of the facility fee that right. you can capture. You're really on like a, you're a penguin, not an iceberg. It's getting smaller and smaller. <laughs> and you, you know, maybe you're now philosophically buying in. Okay. Adding cash as a, a payer is something that I want to move toward. What then, what counsel would you give that physician? So I think probably at that point, the, the question is, and, and really, I, I just want to walk through a couple ideas. One is, when a doctor thinks, okay, I'm kind of open to this cash idea, the first thing they do is they look at their revenue and they think my revenue is X, right? I'm paying myself and I have some profit, but you know it's X. So what is this thing going to cost me, right? And so doctors will see a price point, let's say $65,000, let us say $100,000, let us say $150,000. We're talking about the cost of a house, you know, a high-end car or a, a you know a small home. That's overwhelming, and they look at that and say, "Well, I can't afford that out of my present revenue, right?" And, and they really don't understand that there's a difference between a capital expense, right, paying for something in your office, your your computer system goes down, you got to replace it. Your air conditioning goes down, you got to replace it. Those are capital expenses. Capital investments are when you bring in technology that actually generates revenue for your practice. So instead of looking at the cost of this is coming out of my present revenue, 
you have to understand that it's going to come out of new revenue. And here's the secret that most doctors don't understand. And I actually had to call around to all of my reps across the country who were selling $100,000, $150,000, $200,000 pieces of equipment just to confirm this. It takes, no matter what the cost is of the technology, it takes two patients a month to cover the monthly investment. That's it. So your risk is, can I find two patients a month? And if the answer is yes, then you have no risk because it's going to be covered. Because the more expensive the technology, typically the more expensive the, the service cost to the patient is, right? So it might be $600 on one technology, but it might be $1,500 to the patient on another or $2,500 on the next, which means you know, it only takes two patients to cover the cost of whatever the technology is. So the question is, and we go back to the gaps, what are the areas that, that you can offer new services to your patient and how many of those patients do you have, right? So if, if in my mind, I'm thinking two patients will cover the cost and I see two patients, excuse me, if I see a hundred patients a week, then 2% of my patients saying yes on week one, I've now paid for the device, right? If that repeats itself on week two, three, and four, I've now have earned you know, 300% on my investment. Week one paid for it. Week two, three, and four is putting money in my pocket. So if your out-of-pocket expense was $1,000, you paid for that on week one, you put 3,000 into your pocket at the end of the month. If your cost was $2,000, you've now put in, in week two, three, and four, 6,000 into your pocket. So it's really just helping doctors understand what is what is the risk and what is the income opportunity? Because the numbers they need to understand are the monthly investment, what is the cost of the protocol, that creates my, my a break-even number, and then with my patient population, what is a conservative, and I want doctors to always do in a conservative analysis, can I get two patients a week? Can I get three patients a week? And what they find is the answer is yes. Most doctors who adopt technology find that it's it becomes essentially a cash cow for them. So talk a little bit about what kind of technology we're talking about here. Okay, so over the years in sales, I've sold all types of, of technology, but presently I deal with what is called the MLS therapy laser. It is a robotic class four laser. And for doctors that don't know, all lasers are divided into four classes. Class one is a scanner at a grocery store, a reader for your DVD or your CD player. Class two tends to be a pointer, maybe a surveyor's tool. Class three is the beginning of a biologic effect. They tend to look like small flashlights. Class four are hot lasers. And so if you've ever had LASIK surgery, which obviously we haven't, or you've had a wart removed, Typically, it was done with a hot laser. If you've had your dog neutered or spayed, a lot of times veterinarians will use a hot laser to make that incision. So there are hot lasers that do therapy also, which you know take, helps to remove pain from the patient. Well, we have the only class four laser in the world that doesn't create heat. Because it's the only class four laser in the world that doesn't create heat, we're the only ones that's robotic. So your staff can actually set up our laser, point it at tissue, and then walk out of the room. 
and the laser will treat the patient by itself. So if I'm in a small practice, the doctor can set it up, walk into the other room, take care of a patient or two. If, if there's staff around, they can do it. But the beauty of it is, is nobody's being tied up in that room, yet it's making you money, right? And so doctors are starting to realize, well, I can duplicate my time, I can duplicate my income, and, and they're getting tremendous results, both clinically, because at the end of the day, it all comes down to clinical results. Doctors are not going to buy anything where they think they have to sell a result that they can't actually deliver, right? So if you can actually get the results, doctors are much more comfortable with that, right? Because they know they're going to get the results. They know the patient's going to be happy. And more importantly, the patient is going to talk to their friends and their family who are like them, and the doctor's practice is going to build from there without increasing a demand on the doctor's time or effort. So that's ours. There's other models out there in terms of, you know, if you're doing ED treatments or depending on the doctor, but your audience is predominantly pain. So if if I was looking at, let's say, a PM&R doctor, let's say it's a PM&R doctor who's already done, is already starting to investigate cash, right? They're looking at PRP or they're looking at stem cells through BMAC, right? So you have sort of a tiered offering to Mrs. Johnson. You have minimally invasive PRP, a little bit more invasive, you know, BMAC for stem cells to withdraw the stem cells from the hip or from the leg bone and then re-inject it. Well, instead of two tiers, now you have three tiers. So you have a non-invasive solution at a slightly lower price point. Then you have your PRP, which is a minimally invasive, and then you have BMAC. So you actually have sort of lots of options for the patient. And what you'll find is, like everything else, patients will typically go towards what is least costly and least invasive. And so it's easy to set those patients up. And then again, your staff are doing that. So you're doing injections or PRP with other patients, and your staff are doing those treatments with the MLS, right? So it looked like you might've had a question. So here's what I want to say is uh, obviously I am not a physician. So anything that <laughs> Joseph is sharing, anybody in this audience needs to do their own research, read your yeah. own white papers and make sure that you come to your own conclusions from a clinical standpoint, from a business standpoint, understanding that uh, you can sort of plug a different gap in the continuum of care that perhaps for a physician, you're not currently filling. That's something that for me as the business guy, I, I see this as very attractive. I'm curious, Joseph, in your experience as, you know, you go from a doctor who's thinking about, well, not thinking about themselves, but perhaps is has difficulty distinguishing themselves from their peers in their market. They're that bar with like 15 other bars down the street. And like, why should somebody come to me? For a physician who has this kind of technology and develops the familiarity with it and understands how to communicate where on the continuum of care it falls and how it can serve as a a really valuable asset. How have you observed physicians sort of take advantage of that as it relates to who they are, who their practice is, and maybe trying to build a referral network, trying to get doctors familiar with the technology, trying to use it as an opportunity to capture more new patients? Yeah, no, you know, it's funny is I'd be willing to bet that 95% of my doctors do not do any exterior marketing. And the reason they don't is because they get so many referrals in-house. Because again, the, the patient who's willing to pay for the services knows other patients like themselves, 
and are probably in the same age bracket, same demographic. And so they have the same needs as the patient who you presently have, right? So all of a sudden, doctors realize I'm getting patients from the larger population at no cost to me because my patients are actually doing the marketing for me. And it's it's the higher end, high value patients who are doing this, right? So word on the street gets out. If you think about it, if I'm a patient and I've been in pain for a long time and all of a sudden I'm out of pain, that's going on my Facebook page, right? I have 200, I've got 600, I've got, you know, a thousand people on my Facebook page. All of a sudden the doctor's name is out there as a source uh, for pain relief. So it's interesting, and I'll tell you a quick story. So we have a doctor who's an orthopedic surgeon in Florida, and he has three uh, MLS lasers. And I asked him, why do you have three? And he says, because I get so many referrals. I said, is that just patients referring? He goes, no, other doctors are referring to me. (laughs) I said, okay, that's kind of interesting. Do they not know what you're doing and that you're generating revenue? And he says, they just see it as this is a patient I have no solution for. This doctor down the street has a solution. I'm just sending the patients there. When he's done, he's sending that patient back to me. So they're happy with that. So he actually has doctors who are sending patients. And the more we asked our doctors, the more we see that if you're the doctor who'll step out, if you're the doctor who's going to come up with a solution, recognize that a significant number of your colleagues, are not, and they're not going to follow your lead, but they will send patients to you because they have patients, they have gaps in their care, they don't have a solution, but they recognize you do, and so they're going to send that patient to you, hoping that that patient comes back to them for the rest of their treatments. So we see that all the time. So can you talk a little bit about sort of the, you know, how you think about the cost and like, does a doctor need to have 200 grand in the bank or other financing options? And how does that right. work with monthly payments and cash flow? And if somebody says, this sounds interesting, I'm wondering what the financial economic implications are for me. Yeah, no, absolutely. So it's it's interesting because I, I worked with a company once and their whole business model was the doctors are rich, they can afford to just buy it, right? That is not an acceptable business model right? If I'm a doctor and I'm bringing a new technology, I would like to have a ramp up period. I'd kind of like to get used to it because I've never done this before. This is a little bit different for me. So what we do is we bring in technology and and we offer zero down and zero for six months. So the doctor actually has a nice ramp up period. We typically do a five-year lease. So you know whatever the cost of the laser is, divide by 60, and that gives you a general idea of what your monthly is. Uh, that's going to change a little bit as the Fed changes the rates, right? So for most doctors, they're probably going to see somewhere about $1,200. Again, you know, don't hold me to that because I don't know what the Fed's going to do. So again, two patients a month covers that. And so it's a very comfortable adoption because the doctor has no money out of pocket. They got six months to bring in patients. And we have a lot of doctors who will generate half, 75% of the value of the device within that first six months. And so all of a sudden they realize, wait, I've, I've got this, this little cushion of cash sitting here and I don't owe anybody anything on this. And the next two patients are gonna make my lease payment, right, going forward. So 
it's we we work with the doctors to make them as comfortable as possible in the transaction and and not think they have to go pull equity out of their house or you know they may have a little bundle put to the side just for prop you know emergencies at their practice we don't want to drain that and, and we don't want to pull anything from the marketplace you know so we just put together a very easy onboarding process for them one of the things that I look for is the uh, sort of the time to break even as I'm helping doctors, you know, evaluate business opportunities. And I've been on calls with private practitioners and people ask them to write a check for, <laughs> I mean, people ask doctors to make bad business decisions and they look them in the eye and say, this is going to be good for you. And I can tell you, <laughs> I don't think it's going to be good for them. Of course, I'm not getting, you know, paid by a commission for whatever they're selling. So right. this is a very important thing to think about. And I really like the way that you break it down in terms of you need patient volume, you know, if you're doing 100 patients a week and you need to think about the in the care continuum, how many of those patients of the 100 a week may benefit from something like this that currently would not be have access to it elsewhere or currently you'd be sending them somewhere. And on a monthly cash flow basis, if it is two patients, if you have enough volume to be able to see those two patients, it significantly mitigates your risk. And also you're buying a piece of hardware. So you, one of the things that you want to think about in terms of a big capital investment is what's the worst case scenario? If I buy this laser and for whatever reason, my practice falls apart or nobody wants it against all odds, you own this shiny new laser, which frankly, sure, it's not great. I'm looking at this from a business standpoint, but at least you've got a piece of hardware that you can then sell <laughs> and recoup no, it, your investment. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. One, it's an asset, right? And so the nice thing is it's an asset and it's an asset that generates money. So I will tell you that about 25% of our doctors end up buying more than one. And we have doctors that have up to 17. So if you somehow are the one doctor that can't make this work, uh, we should have a conversation because it, it means it's sitting in the box somewhere and you haven't actually presented it to your patients because the demand is so high. So it's interesting. I have a, a doctor who just started his practice. Four months, he had an email list of 300 patients, right? He does an email blast out to 300 patients, recognizing that most of the doctors who are watching your show probably have three to 5,000 patients a year that they see. So he had 300 patients. The demand, the pent up demand for people who have chronic pain, recognizing that there's somewhere between 50 and 100 million people who have chronic pain is so high that he was overwhelmed and ended up making, the good news is he made $18,000 in his first month. He bought a second laser to handle the capacity, and he's excited as can be. But he's he's four months in with 300 people on his email list. So when I tell that story to other doctors, I remind my doctors, you do not want to send out an email to 3,000 patients. You send out a couple hundred at a time because you cannot deal with that kind of overwhelm. Unless you want to lease 17 lasers on day one. <laughs> Which we're happy to work with you on. But Right. And I'm not telling you to do for the record, right, dear listeners. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. But, but here's the interesting thing. Typically, doctors have three groups in their practice, right? So you have the private pay patient, you have the Medicare pay patient, and the Medicaid pay patient. And a lot of times doctors kind of think the Medicare and the Medicaid are the same bundle. 
But the reality is the Medicare patient, which is an indication of age, not income, are the baby boomers. They're 45% of the population, but they control 75% of the wealth. So these are people who, according to studies, are dramatically increasing their spend on health because they're going to live longer than, you know, the previous generations and they want to be active. You know, the old commercial where you see somebody sitting on the porch with a rocking chair, drinking a beer, waiting for the inevitability, that doesn't exist. These people are joining gyms. You know, if you go on the Grand Canyon, there's people doing rim to rim hikes, which is, you know, 27 miles, you know, down one face, up the other face. It's just crazy. They're active. They're they're doing cruises. They're just all over the place. Van life is a big part of, you know, the elder community. So they want to be healthy and they're willing to invest money in it. So the Medicare patient is not somebody to dismiss. And what doctors will find is whatever your percentage is right now between private pay, Medicare, and Medicaid in your practice, what's going to happen is your Medicare and your private pay patient is going to rapidly expand because that's the patient population you're going to start drawing from. That's the new referrals you're going to get. So it actually changes the dynamic of your practice where you're seeing more patients who are willing to spend more money. And if you, you know, you do the multiplication of small numbers multiplied over time, you realize that alone is changing your practice, right? So it's interesting. I look at, and we've done some conversations with doctors and, you know, you're in, you help doctors invest money, right? So there's a return on investment. You put an X into the market, you're going to get X out. You know, you're hoping for 10% a year. If you get 20%, would you say you're a rock star? 20% 20% is better than 10. Yes. So, but at the end of the at the end of the year, right? For every dollar invested, if you're getting 20%, you get two dimes. You get your dollar back and you get two dimes, right? So it's still significant, but visually, eh. But if I paid for my laser in the first month, or excuse me, with the first week, with the first two patients, and I duplicate that in week two, week three, week four. I've made 300%. So investing in my practice is the best way to generate revenue that then I can come to you and say, okay, now I've got this bundle and I need to put it in my SEP, right? I need to reduce my taxes. I'm gonna, I'm gonna maximize my SEP. I'm now in that position. I can do that, right? So everything works better for the doctor. They're making more money in the present that money is going to fund their SAP, which is going to fund their future, right? Their patient population is shifting, so they get more high-value patients. And this is where doctors take the next step. They do essentially the snowball, and they realize, if I can bring in one cash product, I can bring in two. I can bring in three, right? And if I can delegate to that to my staff, and my staff are now making sixty dollars to $100,000 each, on each technology I have, what does that do to my practice? And, it, and it's almost to the point where the doctors who do this giggle because they just can't imagine three years earlier, two years earlier that this was their world, right? Everything changes so dramatically. So, you know, doctors are very smart people. They've learned medicine. Business is not that complicated. They just need to sit down with somebody who can explain some simple procedures and and ideas so they can say, oh, I get it, right? 
For listeners who want to hear more, how can they reach out to you and where should they go to get additional information? Yeah, probably the best place to get a hold of me is on LinkedIn. I'm Joseph Kenrick, K-E-N-R-I-C-K. I talk about hybrid practice there all the time. I've got a lot of videos that they can look at. And I typically have a link there so that they can just reach out, have a 15-minute conversation. I'm happy to answer their questions and see if it's a fit for them. Great. And we'll we'll throw the link to Joseph's profile in the show notes for our listeners for your convenience. Joseph Kenrick, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you for your time and joining us on APM Success. I appreciate it, Justin. You have a great day, and I think you're doing a great service for the doctors out there. If you liked what you heard this week, head on over to apmsuccess.com, where you can find more content and free resources to help you build a successful career in anesthesia and pain management. If you wanted to leave a review in iTunes, I'd also really appreciate it. Thanks for using some of your valuable time to join me today on APM Success.